Yeah, I'm sorry, that amazing man of God couldn't make it and I'm filling in at the last moment. <laughs> Thank you, Pete and worship team. I, um, I'll come back and talk about that just in a moment. As some of you know, I'm not very keen on preaching because... Um, Theory is relatively easy in some ways, and regurgitation, but execution is, uh, you know, the real trick, I guess, and stay awake, Steph, please. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, it's easy to talk, but, um, you know, what sort of comes out in our lives, that's where it really counts, and the day-to-day, so I'm much keener on being down there with you than preaching, but Tim asked me if I had any thoughts, so um, he knows that's a silly question, and um, it's funny how some things unfolded, but talking about execution and executioners, this last week or so, I've just had some incredible time with the executioners, and, um, you know, it sort of goes on and on, I guess, but... uh, you know, we started a little bit with um, dinner last Sunday night and just hearing some of the stories, Sammy and the peoples. And then um, this week we were at Jeff's place and he was harvesting a whole lot of honey and we had a great time there. And then we had dinner with Cam and Elisa, actually a little bit be- before that, and hearing their story and their execution and what they're going for was, was fantastic. We had a bunch of guys down on our boat um, the last few days and that was extraordinary to see what is God is doing in their lives. I had my business partner there with us and he's just sort of taking all this in. And, um, you know, it's a wonderful thing to see the reality of lives with God having an effect on, on others and, and on me and each other. We had a a huge discussion on Wednesday night with Pete and Warwick about worship and about Pete's heart for worship. And um, that just was fantastic. We had this incredible moments um, where kind of, I think God was stirring up a whole lot of stuff and Pete's history, particularly in Bethel and his own walk. And, you know, what God's doing and saying to him was fantastic. And I just kind of... Thrilled to be a part of that. We had Frosty's dinner last night, which, you know, you've been executing for years. And some of the fruit of that I know I've heard from last night was fantastic. Did it go well, Steve? Yeah. Great time. Great executioner over there. We had uh, Elijah House and, you know, people trying to execute in their lives. And what is God saying? What do I need to be doing? So... <clears throat> It's just a few examples. We had the HSCers over here <laughs> trying to stay faithful. And um, of course, we've got the youth time we had on Friday night, which was great. We've got Tim and Deb in Adelaide, you know, executing with, with people. And it's, it's just great to recognize, you know, people who are stepping out in faith. I've called tonight's talk the engine room. And the reason that, or the thoughts that have come to my mind as we were down on the boat for the last few days, 
you know, this boat is a company purchase and we're trying to run a business out of it and that's a long story. It's a beautiful looking boat. But, you know, if the engine room, which is the dirtiest, grubbiest, most confusing part of the boat, isn't working, the whole thing, the whole theory falls apart. And I spend a lot of time down in that engine room I'm in amongst all the pipes and the tubes and this big diesel engine and greasing prop shafts and making sure the batteries are going. And if this engine doesn't keep working, it doesn't matter how pretty this thing is or how big it is or how many flushing toilets it has, um, you know, the whole, the whole meaning of it falls to pieces. And I'd like to suggest that you, the executioners, uh, the engine room of this church. Now, that's sort of... Tonight's going to be a few platitudes and obvious things, but I want to sort of dive a little bit deeper and, and sort of pull some, some pieces back. That you are the piece that keeps this place going. And there's this subtle, subtle difference of uh, whether the meetings and the gatherings are the life of this church, or it's what God is doing in you is the life of this church. And I just wanted you to talk with the person next to you for a moment and just explain, not the politically correct answer, but why do you come to church? I want you to honestly dig deep, and it might be, um, you know, it might be because I feel guilty if I don't go. It might be, uh, I don't really know why I go, I've just always done it. Or there might be some other really positive reasons. But I wonder if you could just discuss that honest response in your heart. Why do I come to church? All righty. So here's, um, anyone like to volunteer some of their honest thoughts? Sammy? I'm going to share Margaret's. Um, yeah, great. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> the corporate worship is different to being at home and doing God's work. Yeah. Cool. That's fantastic, isn't it? That was fantastic tonight. Cam, you're right onto it, I think. It was really quite special. Anyone else? Sammy was saying because, uh, or Margaret was saying that um, she comes to church for the corporate worship. And it's different than just at home alone. Yeah. Great, Eilish, because it makes Eilish happy and a heart sing. Any others? Wiza? I, I guess I come, despite how the week went, if it went well or when it didn't go so well, I come to see what happens with God does. Yeah, what God's up to. Okay, cool. Anyone else busting to... Uh, you come to grow. Okay, excellent. That's all. They're all incredible answers, incredibly good answers. I guess one of the, the subtle thoughts that, that I sort of want to develop a little bit is sometimes church becomes the place we outsource our personal responsibilities. So we come to church maybe weekly because that's where... I get a shot for my relationship with God. That's where I hear some teaching. That's where I meet with the other believers. That's where I'm kind of a part of a program that gives me a sense of um, I'm a believer and I do this sort of thing. 
I suppose I want to contrast it with our own personal walks with God, that during the week, what does that look like? Our own sense of being taught by the scriptures personally, what does that look like? Our own sense of relationships that aren't dependent on a meeting, but are real relationships. You know, there's this famous pastor, Juan Ortez, who had a church of a couple of a thousand people, and he said, right, to test what is really going on in this church, we're not going to meet for a year. And he said, you know, the life of this church is dependent on the, the relational connections that exist outside of the meetings. And um, so I guess I wanted to speak into that this afternoon, that what is the engine room looking like and how do you own it and how do you shape it in your week of those pieces of personal worship, those pieces of relational development, those pieces of understanding the scriptures yourself and your time with God growing personally and not leaning on a once a week event. Now, you know, both are good, both are good, but I, I guess I'm just wanting to highlight the alternative of our ability to personally move our walks forward and that the Sunday becomes not a place to get the hit, it becomes a place of bringing all that God has been doing to share with the brethren and to be part of a, a move of God in us personally that comes together corporately. One of my friends that I meet with quite regularly for breakfast who is um, Muslim by culture and um, sort of a God-fearer by nature but not quite a Jesus guy yet sent me a, a meme during the week from Facebook that he got which basically was just a sentence saying um, the miracle of Jesus that is not talked about is the fact that he had 12 close friends at the age of 30. And um, for him, this was like funny, but it was so true. And he's a successful professional. He's, you know, works in a big uh, accounting firm. He's on a huge salary. He's on a trajectory to kind of become a very successful young man. But for him, to have close friends in his world is just doesn't happen. And he, he sees it as something that he wants, but he kind of goes, it's a miracle that that, that would happen in his world. And um, I kind of, you know, this was a little crystal, a little crystallizing thought as I was thinking about today that this miracle that Jesus had 12 close friends um, is kind of a funny twist. But when we think about the style or the way Jesus came into the world, that was his mission and his only purpose was to relationally connect with these 12 men. And it wasn't an accident. It wasn't so much that he was so attractive that he was or he was so clever at preaching or miracles, but he went and pursued these guys and asked them to come with him. And he could have done... You know, he could have done lots of things. He could have just done miracle after miracle. He could have um, opened the heavens. 
But he chose to come and dwell amongst men and women. He chose to live with them. And his purpose was to connect closely with those 12 men. When you look at the church generally and you um, say, well, what is the implicit message from churches, from our church? What, you know, what springs to mind? I was part of the Anglican tradition for, for years and years and years. I worked, what, for 10 years in the Anglican church as a youth pastor and went to this went to that church for 30 years and I used to say they've made me life member which means they let me work here for nothing but um, <laughs> there was a, an open letter that went around recently in the Anglican church that said from, it was signed by I don't know 100 pastors a, a, a very large significant amount of pastors in the Sydney diocese that said hang on we have a problem Houston we have a problem the Anglican Church in Sydney is known for its doctrinal purity and it's known for its you know, adherence to the Reformation and, and good theology, but we are not known for our love of the brethren or love of anybody. Mm-hmm. And these ministers and reverends and vicars and things were just quite, quite disturbed at what they were looking at in their own denomination that had become a denomination of... of the head and a denomination of doctrine and a denomination of doing things right, but somehow the heart of a relational commitment and a being known for love was missing in the Anglican Sydney Diocese. And these guys put it to the Synod and, you know, I'm not sure it went anywhere significant, but what would we be known for? What would we be known for? What do we know ourselves as? What do we think about when we think... I-61, what, what is the implicit message coming out of, of our, our place? And there are some very distinct qualities, there are some very distinct giftings from God that are really good. But I'd like to suggest that, you know, one of these attributes of being known for our love that we have for each other is a place we, we want to grow in, we want to get better at, we want to... Um, know what that means. And I I suppose the reasoning uh, is obvious. It's one of these cliches that, you know, God is love and and the songs today, thank you, Pete, were so fantastic, really honing in on that. But what does it mean when we're made, when the Bible says we're made in the image of God and God is love? And you know, I think every human being has actually been made in the image of God and they have this piece in their DNA that has this incredible need for love and an ability to love. But it is so messed up and it is so corrupted. But deep in our, in our whole creation, we've been made with this image, this most significant quality of God is love. So we've been made... To be loved and to love. And ultimately, that is our purpose and our direction. Now, we spend a lot of time understanding our, our faith, justification and sanctification, and being redeemed and healing of wounds and praying over our histories and, and um, working through 
you know, our, our stories. But the ultimate purpose for that foundation is to bring us alive to love. That is where we have been created to be effective. The church is to be known as the great lovers. The great lovers. And that we are reflecting this DNA that God has made us to be great lovers of each other, to be loved, to be pouring out our lives for one another. That is the, uh, that is the core foundational purpose. Now, the gifts come in and, and they're totally important and special, but in themselves, they are nothing. And, you know, the Corinthian church got carried away with this whole notion of the gifts and they discovered the, that they could exercise incredible prophetic words and they'd go off into ecstatic um, sessions and the, the church actually got a bit wild and, um, you know, those that had the gifts were special and those who didn't and people had mystical knowledge that... that uh, um, gave them authority and, and, it, and it disturbed and disrupted the church. And so Paul wrote a whole letter to these problems in the Corinthian church and he started to explain how the gifts should be exercised with discipline and in proper order. But in the middle of the three chapters where he elaborates on the gifts, he concentrates on love. You know, the... 1 Corinthians 13, that is so often quoted at weddings and, and as this um, wonderful uh, document about what love is, and we all know it so well. Well, Paul was using that to say, hey, you guys are getting carried away with the gifts and you're getting identity out of the gifts, but they're actually worthless unless I'm understanding what God's love is for me and then what that means in my response to others. So I just wanted to, to um, read that in a moment. But the question that I have for us and to sort of probe into your heart is that what if we use the measure of our ability to love as a sense of our maturity in Christ? And that it's not how good we are at scripture memory. It's not how good we are at doctrine. It's not how good we are at leading worship or preaching or administering or doing works. The measure is our capacity and our security to love and establish mature relationships. So the question would be, how many... Or what is the quality of your relationship with others? Who are the people in your life that you can point to and say, that relationship is significant, has been very significant, I'm so close to them, they're close to me, we know each other, we connect with each other, um, that person is important to me and I'm important to them. That person is my son, that person is my father. How many of those 
significant relationships do we have in our life? And if we use that as a measure of maturity and uh, how far we've kind of understanding God's love, um, then that could be a whole new index of what the body of Christ's maturity looks like. Now, knowing the scriptures is totally important. I don't, I don't, know, I don't want to hose that down. Exercising the gifts is fantastic and we want more of that. But what I want to elevate is the place of love and connectedness with others. I was talking with somebody the other night and they were saying, you know, I've been in leadership of church churches for over 15 years and I have no friends. And I'm sort of, and you know, we're kind of going, he was discovering that himself for the first time. But, you know, that we're developing leadership that doesn't even know how to love and have, you know, a sense of mature um, friendship and purpose in the relationships. And we tend to honour those who are good at things but not good at relationship. And people who can, you know, preach and lead services and play instruments and good with money get elevated as leaders... But what if we said no one can lead in this church until they have demonstrated a connectedness and a leadership amongst people, that people follow them, that people are with them, that people trust them. That is the criteria for leadership. It's got nothing to do with anything else. And that kind of uh, ability with people is so dependent on your understanding of your relationship with God because effectively... You can't love unless you know someone is loving you. But God has your back. He's meeting your needs. He's looking after you to give you the capacity to go and look after others. And so as we understand that, it gives us bandwidth and ability to do that. And uh, you know, so, so often when we're unable to develop relationships of servanthood and love and commitment, it's because we don't really understand what what God's done for us or is doing for us or is how he's covering our backs and looking after us. So that's kind of the, uh, the, the challenge, I guess, or the, the thought for today, that the quality of our friendships, the depth, the frequency of them, the number of them, is it actually a, an index to our understanding of how God loves us and that that our goal, our, our future, our progress, our destiny is so wrapped up in connectedness with people way ahead, way ahead of the ministry I want to, you know, I want to do, way ahead of the program I want to be a part of, way ahead of my own personal destiny. I want to be a successful businessman or I want to go into full-time ministry or I want to do this, I want to do that. The... The, the priority, the balance which needs to shift is my ability to love and relate and connect and have significant long-term relationships with others. And that is the challenge that, that uh, I think God is putting before us. And you know what? I think the church has avoided it because it's so difficult. The church at large is so quick to go to the program it's so quick to help the poor. It's so quick to, you know, organise a group. 
but it is actually an, an incredibly difficult thing to have long-term committed relationships. And um, in my, you know, 40 or 50 years, I've seen so many shipwrecks, so many damaged relationships, so many fractures, because the ministry has been more important than the relationship or um, the, the machine has got so carried away. We had this huge ministry machine in the 80s with, you know, 1,000 kids, which I've talked about before. But the machine got so intense that the relationships, we didn't have time to relate and love each other as a staff, and it just blew to pieces. And, you know, the engine room of the ministry of Jesus is this connectedness amongst ourselves, that we protect to the nth degree, that we honour and we cherish and we develop and we see what ministry springs out of that. Now, quite often ministries create relationship and that's kind of a nice fruit. But, you know, you take the ministry away and what relationship have you got left? That's the litmus test. And it's been fun to hang with, you know, a whole lot of these guys and, and uh, to see the, the connectedness that's growing in our midst and amongst each other and to sense a common heart and a common purpose. And, you know, maybe someday out of that God will give a ministry to other men. But we're not going to fall into the trap of having a men's ministry. That's the trap where you jump and you have an organisation and you have a plan and you invite everybody and everyone's got to set up chairs and bring food. <laughs> but out of the connected relational commitment in our midst, a men's ministry will emerge. And, you know, God will have his own picture and shape and, and uh, colour and beauty of that, um, if that in fact happens. To see... Um, you know, hearts grow and, and, and passions emerge and to stand with the guys to say, man, if God's saying to that for you, we need to step right in with you. We need to help that happen. We need to pray that that blossoms. We want to be there for you. If that's what God's put on your heart, it's on my heart. And I want to be in that with you. And um, there's some of the, the things that are going on, I suppose, with... Uh, with, with the guys and as we, we stumble along and, and um, try and understand what it is to be committed to each other. You know, we've got the, the youth nights coming and to, um, for the leaders of that time to actually um, not just be seen as helping out for a program, but they step into this place of saying, I want to connect with these kids. I want to be their friend. I want to be their best friend. And that doesn't mean you turn up, you know, occasionally. That means you're there as often as you can be and you're thinking of ways to connect outside of that time. And you're thinking of ways to enter into their lives and you're thinking of um, how you can relate to high school kids. I used to lead, you know, youth ministry for years and years and years and I know how intimidating that can be when you can be totally rejected by high school kids. And it is painful and um, it is courageous to step into that place. And, you know, we need to pray for Megan and for James and others who are stepping into that place to connect with these kids, not to run a program, to develop relationships of commitment and trust. 
to be fathers and mothers in these places, modelling what it is to trust, trust Jesus and modelling what it is to deepen their relationships. So I suppose I, I didn't want to say too much more um, other than to put that direction and possibility out there that wouldn't it be incredible if I-61 was known as to be a place of, of deep love, of a place where people are so cared for and in the midst of that, that connectedness and love and servanthood, the gifts just flourish and the preaching is incredible and, and um, people are coming not because of that they're coming and being connected because of these relationships of people laying down their lives and genuinely connecting and praying and relating and caring on this one-to-one level. I want you to, um, we're just going to pray a little bit. I want you to maybe close your eyes. I want you to think a little about where you stand in relation to some of those thoughts about your relationships, maybe, you know, even husbands and wives, parents with kids, but particularly with brothers and sisters in in the spiritual family. Who are those people? What are the issues which stop me? What does my schedule look like in relation to the time that I give to connecting and loving and serving each other? Father, we just uh, thank you that You so long to walk with us and dwell amongst us. You so long to let us experience the fact that you're meeting all our needs, that you have a plan for each one of us, that you are longing for so many good things for us, that you don't want us just to be turning up at church. You want us to be listening and talking, walking with you, worshipping and enjoying your presence moment by moment. We thank you that you have a high calling for us to be great lovers, to be known for our love and our passion for each other, our laying down our lives, our care and concern way ahead of our own livelihoods and our own vocations and our own ministries and our own giftings. Lord, I thank you for this exciting picture of a community of great lovers who are knowing their God and trusting him. I pray for each one of us and all the different relationships that we're in and the people we're with and the incredible connection and love we have already established. And Lord, I just pray for much more of that. Pray for a a deep heart of 
of uh, the love of Christ flowing through us to those around us and that as we experiment and learn what that looks like, that you will release in our midst a community, an ecclesia of, of uh, great carers and lovers who are led by the head into all that you have for us. We wouldn't be seduced and distracted by all the other things that look and feel good. We'd be totally uh, overcome with your presence in our world. Thank you, for, thank you for this place. Thank you for these people. Thank you for what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen.